I don't think ours came from like a hippie store as much as just like like the Asian food market. But maybe maybe it came from the hippie store. Oh, I didn't even think of checking with them. Yes. Yes, the the Asian food markets, they have lots of cool things. Well, you know. Oh yeah. Really I just never thought of checking with them for dolls. D U L C E, right? No. D U L S E, I think. S E. Yes. Because English is fun and why would we spell things? <laughs> Right. Yes. yes. I'll check with her and she'll probably give me tons of crap every time I ask. I love her so much because every time I walk in, she's like, what do you want? Why are you here? <laughs> I just want to buy. Uh, now she's super sweet too. And so, but yeah, anytime I ask her questions, like, do you have eyes? It's right here. <laughs> it's like, yes, I have eyes. They do not read Cantonese. <laughs> no, they don't. Oh, <laughs> uh, cool deal. All right. Um, I'm excited to do this. We've like concluded. We've concluded a book. And I, I don't know. Does it feel like like end of semester victory? It does, or? It does a little bit. Yeah. Anyway, yes. Okay. There will be a quiz Especially at the end. Because I have been, as I was in college, I've been cramming a lot of the time. <laughs> oh, yeah. We're recording. I should probably read soon. I know. I, I did that. I, I finished mine last night. Um, so it was good. So I'm. We'll do something a little different for this one then, because I want to. I'll do a teaser for this one, and Ooh. and also I want to share a pitch for my story because I'm working on that, and this is theoretically all supposed to be about me and my story anyway. So of course, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Welcome to the Word and Journey podcast, conversations with friends about stories that shape us and make us think, and some stories that are just for fun. We're busy people reading books in realistic increments. Follow along in the book and join in the conversation, or just sit back and enjoy. Our aim is to unpack the story and offer you things to ponder. Either way, thanks for being here. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Word and Journey podcast with Moses and Jake. You're very fun people with very husky, sultrous morning voices because... <laughs> yeah, next time we'll, we we do have to do like an evening episode with alcohol sometime. <laughs> so. I'm, I'm very here for this. I have a bottle-aged uh, farm ale that I've been so excited to crack open to. Ooh, I might have to... Head up to Spokane for an episode or two or three or ten. If we do like five episodes at a stretch, that's a binge. So because we're we're males, so that's yeah, you know how we do. <laughs> right. Okay. So uh, okay, a couple things before we get in. So we are concluding our discussion, our rambling fun discussion of the Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis today. Uh, I'm going to start with a couple of things that have nothing to do with C.S. Lewis. So one is going to be, so after this one, we will continue, Lord willing, talking about books, stories that shape us and make us think. I'm going to read the first paragraph of the next book we have on the docket and leave you to guess what book it is. And at the end, I will tell you. So here we go. Chapter one. It was a bright, cold day in April and the clocks were striking 13. Winston Smith his chin nuzzled into his breast in an effort to escape the vile wind, slipped quickly through the glass doors of Victory Mansions, though not quickly enough to prevent a swirl of gritty dust from entering along with him. What's the novel? Who wrote it? And what are we? What kind of ride are we in for next? We'll see. We'll see. I'll tell you at the end. And will we remember to tell you at the end? Right. So... <laughs> <laughs> Good call. Good call, Jake. So if we get hate mail, uh, email Jake, ask him my book. Yep. Yep. It's just my fault. <laughs> <laughs> right. The other thing. So again, because I am on a journey myself toward finishing a novel and hopefully publishing it. And I have yet to decide if it will be a hardcore self-publish or if I will try to do the trad route, the traditional route, traditional publishing. But... In honor of that, I'm going to share a pitch that I wrote. As I'm learning how to write a really good pitch and learning how to understand my story, and I think also learning how to write a query. So this one is technically too long for a query. So it's not 
So those of you query nerds, yes, I know, I know it's got, I know it needs work. But anyway, here's my pitch. Oleic is seeing visions. He sees the gods fighting. He sees the dark trickster trying to control his cousin as he runs for office. He sees the planet cut apart and burning. At nine years old, he is having visions about 10 years younger than most vision seers when they start. He goes to his father, the only one he can trust, who takes him to an old friend and vision seer named Sayuri. She has the same kinds of gifts as Oleic. She tells him he's been given his gifts for a reason by the sentient planet itself. People like Oleic will be able to do more than just see visions. They'll be able to see the color of feelings, hear people's thoughts, and command others with just a thought. They can harness the powerful energy generated by the planet and even heal. The only way to make sense of the visions and manage the incredible anxiety growing in him is for Oleic to learn to harness his own energy, his flair, and complete the task appointed to him. Protect the planet from those who would exploit it. In this case, his mother's corporation bent on mining the planet force for sustainable energy. What the corporation doesn't acknowledge is that the only portals to the energy are sacred sites across the globe, and that every attempt to mine the planet force in the past has ended in disaster. Oleic has been given the gifts and the power to stop the corporation. He just needs to learn to use them. The only problem is people like Oleic are not supposed to be gifted. When they are, training in or using the, the gifts is illegal, punishable by death, outlawed by the state, and condemned by the church. As he forges ahead, mostly in secret, he discovers allies who believe in him as a healer and opportunistic friends who want to make him a weapon in a revolution. He finds himself at odds with his family, his faith, his government, and everything conventional society expects of him. As the pressure mounts outside, so does the anxiety inside. Even as he develops the most powerful flair in the world, his own grip on reality begins to slip and crumble. He wonders if, when he finally gets to act on behalf of the planet, if he will even believe his task exists. Very nice. I... Here, I'll try and snap into my microphone, but I don't. I hear it. Thank you. Not very well. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, no, that's that's awesome. I'm excited to I'm excited to see it published. I also because I'm weird and I love crazy things of machinery. I really want to like see it get printed at that automated book printer at Powell's. I have not. I have not seen that, but that sounds really fun. Yeah, I feel like it, maybe it's not even there anymore. It was there years ago, at least. Um, but yeah, it was just like I always walked by. And I was like, oh, I want to see something happen. But <laughs> usually when I was there, I was like, I've already bought a $100 or more in books that I really don't need, like at all. And I should stop. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really easy to do that because we love books quite a bit. And yeah. there's just so many. Did you want to share... I guess it'd be a working title since it's not published of your book. Yeah. Working title is what the earth gave. So that is that. And more details on that to come. I'm excited. Yes. All right. Well, back to our uh, regularly scheduled program then. (laughs) So C.S. Lewis. So, so we were doing chapter 12, 13 and 14 because they all kind of went together a little bit or like the last part of chapter 12, however it worked. Anyway, yes, yeah, so, so I think this is so this is one of those parts where I have to be like, you know, dear Jack, please stop, stop, just stop, just stop, because you're making me uncomfortable. <laughs> oh yeah. The the particular ghost in this one, I was like, uh, I've been there and sometimes I'm still there and ew. the dwarf ghost. Yeah. 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 No, it's yeah, it was it was it was grossly self-challenging because I was like, oh, I totally this is this is like every fight with me and my wife is usually something to do with me being really childish and really well it's uh you know in clinical jargon we talk about like self-victimization or like like learn uh not even like learned helplessness, but more like holding myself hostage. You know, like Mm-hmm. I need you to love me and I da, 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 and I like I can't accept love from anyone because you know I need it to be completely on my terms and it just it gets really gross. So having it displayed out here was strongly convicting. <laughs> so mm. but backing up a second because so this so this ghost that's just like us is in contrast to Sarah Smith, who I don't think we talked about very much in detail last time. Uh, no, because she hadn't come up yet. Right. That's right. Because we were caught up on the, uh, the, the, the lizard, the lizard guy, the lizard king, the lizard king. Right. Which we never figured out who that is, but that's okay. Yeah. Uh, uh, George McDonald says of her, he says, it's someone you'll never have heard of. Her name on earth was Sarah Smith and she lived at Golders Green. And Jack says, well, she seems to be, well, a person of particular importance. And George McDonald says, Hey, she is one of the great ones. You have heard that fame in this country and fame on earth are two quite different things. 
which I found really fun because it's like Sarah Smith, like super, super, super generic. Mm-hmm. And she's this person who I, I get the impression, um, pardon me while I clear my throat. You talk a second. <laughs> yeah. So this, this character, Sarah Smith, she enters into the scene just the, in this beautiful, big procession of angels, I think is what these things were. It was just like a series of beautiful things. And then she's also surrounded by what the author calls her children. And uh, George McDonald's kind of explaining like all, all of these people were her children, even though they weren't her kids sort of a thing. And so it was like this, this type of fame is taken to be true, honest love, compassion, etc. Yeah. Losing I'm, that's, that's okay. Yeah. It's early. We've had no scotch. <gasps> yeah. She's presented as this person who I don't, translating this into like, you know, current day new millennium. I, I picture her as like, kind of like your generic social worker lady who like can't really afford fancy clothes or fancy hair might be overweight and just kind of someone like kind of blends in the background and you know, maybe, uh, you know, aside from like the really like high credential and high scholastic training it takes to get that sort of job, like Eric was unskilled, <laughs> you know, that's, that's not what I mean to say. I think what it, it's like, it's like someone who you would normally not see or not really notice and maybe not really even appreciate, but just someone who like, you know, consistently labors in the background, maybe like a school teacher sort of person mm-hmm. too, who like, I mean, our country is really bad about appreciating school teachers. I mean, the people who are mm-hmm. raising our for us so but like someone who yeah you know every or like uh like mcdonald says in, in here is like you know every 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 person that comes across her path is is her child and i'm imagining that means she just loves people or she just has openness for them you know and every animal that comes across her path is is welcomed and cared for also and and i'm, I'm almost, I'm almost kind of getting the impression she's like maybe kind of good looking but maybe maybe not like by by conventional standards but there's this distinct uh, interview to do her such that when, when, when other men see her, they, 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 they go away, like having more love for, for their own wives or like something about her, like evokes the best in people. I really, I really love it. I really love this character and just this seeing her through the lens of the, what's, what's the buzzword the the upside down kingdom and, and was not really appreciated because our world is not really set up to appreciate the inequalities and yeah and it's really really beautiful um i just keep thinking back to somebody in my own life who was very much like this person to me uh it was actually my piano teacher i was going through yeah you know, a lot of hard stuff and also the typical stuff that 10 year 10 year olds to 14 year olds go through sort of a deal and i had a really tough time with my parents the whole nine yards and jamie is just this amazing and wonderful kind person who you do not expect from a piano teacher mind you (laughs) usually it's more like wrapping you over the knuckles but i just remember like having the chance to sit with her and talk and not have to hide things and she was always amazingly welcoming and open like i ate dinner with her and her family many many times um truly beautiful that sounds really beautiful like someone you would want to have praying for you and mm-hmm. uh yeah and that's so important well that's important for people in general but i imagine for like a, like, like a middle schooler becoming a high schooler just having a place to like be unguarded and to yeah. be safe to be safe to be unguarded where you're not going to yes. get exploited or manipulated or anything but it's just someone who's 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 helping you? Like not specifically trying to shape you, except for your fingers. Um, but uh, but yeah, just letting you process. That's super right. beautiful. I love that. Also, yes, canonically in Lewis's theology, animals are in heaven. I believe so. Well, are you think, are you referencing uh, the last battle or no? No, I'm referencing um, shortly after where we just read because our page numbers don't match up. Correct. When Jack is like, but did she keep a a zoo because <laughs> there is like all sorts of animals that are also coming along in this procession that were apparently animals she also took care of yes i know i know i've heard some some other orthodox people like in real life talking about like animals in heaven and there's i think there's a sense that yeah oh, actually i don't actually remember what the sense is mm-hmm. 
because they're not their animals are, are are embodied. They're they're not they're they're not souls. They don't have or they don't have the same kind of soul that we do. So I think like I don't know. I'm sure they show up in heaven, but like their their journey is a different way than than ours. I don't actually yeah. know completely. You'll have to <laughs> listen to the. I, Lord of I don't know. Well. Yeah, I don't know at all either. I think it makes it makes sense in a way because of the coming renewal. Like it's you know, scripture talks about Earth being renewed, um, and so I think that means everything. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm not there and scripture has other things that it talks about instead of this thing. So it does yeah. bring me back to, um, Oh gosh, this was a, it was a website that popped up in I think the early aughts and it was rapture insurance. For what? Yes. Oh dear. So if you get raptured, you're going to have this, this atheist who promises to take care of your pets because your pets aren't coming with you. <laughs> And I forget how much the, I, I think it was actually even just a one-time cost. Now, if I was him, I would have totally made it a subscription, like 10, 10 bucks a month or something for me to do absolutely jack. Right. Oh, dear. That's terrible. Uh, it says, <laughs> so why the Orthodox Church rejects the doctrine of the rapture. <laughs> uh, anyway, well, I mean, I'll, I'll, I know, I do know like part of how, how orthodoxy understands um, salvation is that like all of creation, like all all matter, is safe too. And some part and part of that shows up in in how we work with icons too. It's like because we think like oh yeah, so it's not just like our souls that are no longer you know legally guilty for things, but like we're we're changed, we're transformed, and not just our souls, but but our bodies too, and, and not just our bodies, but but the whole earth. And so even you know you're referencing an icon, even things like wood and paint can still be part of the salvation process and uh and be redeemed fully so it's it's a really beautiful thing so shifting into so shifting toward our dwarf character so our dwarf character he shows up as this dwarf leading this big ugly creature and they're they're sy- they're symbiosis they're or they're symbiont or something they're in symbiosis yeah they something. have a yeah and um, I, I symbiotic was, relationship, right? My, my 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 crazy mind was making a Star Trek reference there, but I was thinking Spider Man. So yeah, you're good. Oh yeah, that that could work. Okay, <laughs> yeah. Top five symbionts and creatures in India. Go <laughs> another time. So it gets presented that Sarah and this dwarf character Frank. Uh, I am presuming they were they were married. Or at least very close in some way. But what strikes me is like her the first words out of her mouth when she sees him and she, she says, you know, Frank, before anything else, forgive me for all I ever did wrong and for all I did not do right since the first day we met, I ask your pardon. Again, just a really, really beautiful sentiment, which almost seems like I can see where this might seem inverted because uh, she's the bright one and he's the ugly ghost. So you might think, what could she have done wrong? Um, and maybe, maybe in one sense, she did not do a lot, maybe. But what I love is that that is her heart and attitude, which feels like, and again, I'm thinking through like Orthodox standpoint, which, uh, you know, a, a huge amount of like spiritual practice centers around learning to repent or this practice of repentance. And it's, you know, build, you know, learn, you know, there's a lot of humility that goes into it and a lot of, and, it, and so we're just, we, we become oriented around forgiveness and repentance and like defaulting to repentance and defaulting to seeking forgiveness. And, and how I see it, uh, and I, I think I have some like healthier people around me. Like I don't see it come across as like a, like a self-flagellation. Like oh, I'm so terrible. And like oh, forgive me. More thing. It's more of like a genuine like like if I've done anything, I I, I want to like default to making sure like I haven't done anything. And like if I have done anything, I want to fix it. And 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 as a I don't know like as a starting point in relationships and conflicts like. That seems to work really, really smoothly, and and I'm definitely thinking about that in contrast to uh, some of the other couples that I work with. Actually, <laughs> I don't do couples counseling. <laughs> There's, uh, I don't, I don't do couples counseling that, like some people don't do windows. Um, and <laughs> and it's when when I've worked with a couple or even in an individual who's like part of a couple and there's not that where there where the default is i need my rights which we've seen that character we've seen characters like that in this book too where they're like i need my rights and i need my dues and you know all these people wrong me and why can't everybody see like you know 
how much they wrong me and everything. When that's the starting point and that's the scope of what a person can be, it's it's miserable. It's completely miserable and it could, and it's it's toxic and vile and and these people don't grow. They stay stuck in it and they they can't connect with people because they're so caught up in like, oh, I've been hurting this way and but starting in the but starting from the other way of like maybe I've hurt this person and maybe I need to take ownership for that and maybe I need to I don't know. It just makes things better. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I still, I, I think we all struggle with it, but I can't say for certain. So I will say I certainly still struggle with, uh, with that, like dealing and walking through a lot of, especially church traumas lately. Um, you know, I tend to start to lean over on the, the self victimizing side a little bit hard. And it's not to say that bad things didn't happen. They certainly did. And I need to work through them because they were pretty, pretty severe within my own life, but I am not without fault either. And so learning, learning to have that humility to even, to even accept that if I, I'm not certain what I did wrong, that there is always the possibility for that and that I should be seeking to correct those wrongs. I think so. Cause, cause you're right. I mean, this doesn't minimize you were hurt and these things were, then those, those hurts were really real. And that is hard. That is a hard concept because we're, I don't know if we're like explicitly taught, but maybe, maybe it's just implicit in experience or whatever, but there's so much of that feeling of like, if I admit that I have done something wrong or screwed something up, then anything that happened to me in that relationship is immediately null and void or it's at the very least, it's not as important. It's not as huge, important, painful. Um, And that's something that's really difficult to wrap my head around still. I can see that. And it's a polarized sort of way of thinking. Like I'm either the hero or the villain and there's only heroes or villains and there's not room for people who are a little bit of both or people who are sort of in process and and that sort of um to be able to have that sort of cognitive complexity is really vital and 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 it and it is complex and and very very highly contextualized because we would look at and say you know you know you're talking about you know stuff that's happened to you as an as an adult i think and 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 when i talk about if i (laughs) if i went into the story of my church trauma and trauma like that that's stuff that happens to me as a a young adult also and yeah i participated in that I, i i had a role in my own trauma absolutely and there are also really bad things that the other people that do and and all of those all of those are real in a really good conversation we would all get to acknowledge that and and, and I'd be able to say uh you know I, I came into this situation with some really bad expectations and some really bad attitudes and um and that thing you did to me also hurt but you know <laughs> you know I I, I forgive as God forgives will you forgive me so yes forgive so back me. to the door <laughs> <laughs> So great one-liners from, from Sarah. So, so this, so this dwarf symbiont, he's, he's going off about like, well, did you really love me? Did you really want me? And he's, he's kind of like, he seems like he's trying to like chop her into like being a bad guy. Be like in looking for ways to be like, ha, so you didn't love me or ha, you were, uh, you weren't really happy or or something. And just, and then just being, being kind of, <laughs> It, I read it as someone being very childish or in more clinical jargon, someone who's very blended with like a child part or really immature, really insecure part. And, and which happens like when, when, when my insecure parts lead, I sound like I'm eight years old again and just like squabbling. Mm-hmm. And yeah. only I am squabbling with like mid thirties lingo and more context. <laughs> yes. so, and, I mean, and more of an ability to, find that pain point in the other. Yeah. Like as as we, as we get older and we get experience, we see, you know, other people's experience and how we could take advantage of it. Right. And and implicitly sometimes like there's many, many times where we don't necessarily know that we're doing it, but Mm. it's, we're still using it to our advantage. Yeah. I think the, the image of the symbiosis here is really striking and important. So it's this 
small little dwarf, which C.S. Lewis has a thing, thing for hating on dwarfs a little bit. I don't know. It was the early 1900s. I'm not really going to say eh, it's fine, but it's weird. And then there's this big sort of hulking theatrical ghost. I think he calls it a tra- tragedian. A tra- tragedian. Tragedian. And you see the dwarf is who Sarah is in love with and is try- is talking to. Like she directly talks to this dwarf, but never to this tragedian even though it's the tragedian that is almost always responding. And you see, as it as the story continues on, you see suddenly the dwarf and the tragedian talk to themselves in unison. It's a really creepy kind of picture, but it's like that, that internal dialogue that, and that, like, <laughs> the devil on your shoulder voice, that's just back and forth and back and forth and, and kind of this cyclical thing that it, it makes it very easy to pull you into a sort of mm. self-victimization mode. Very much so. Talking more about him, there, there's a lot we could say about the the, the the different parts. And again, it's it's me like coming again from like this internal family systems perspective that I'm learning about. And I'm finally gonna take an official training for it. I'm excited. But like the the plurality of the person, the internal community, it, you know, it sees these different protector parts, these different exile parts all around what what ideally is like the core self the the or or the soul and when when a person can be led by the self there's this incredible amount of space and resilience but when they're led by by a part like any all of the parts have limited perspective limited scope limited capacity and will often become really extreme and imbalanced and show up like this and and sometimes they're really reluctant to let their <laughs> let their host go uh, i do want to hit on a couple of things that sarah says so the tragedian is picking at her and he's like, he says something like, you know, you mean you did not love me truly in the old days? And she says, only in a poor sort of way. I have asked you to forgive me. There was a little real love in it. But what we called love down there was mostly the craving to be loved. In the main, I loved you for my own sake because I needed you. And then they have a little bit more dialogue. And then she ends up saying something like, come and see, we shall have no need for one another now. We can begin to love truly. Which I love, and the dwarf hates because it's love based on presence and based on humanity. And like I, I can be present with you. I can see you, the whole you, the real you, and just appreciate you for your sake. I am okay enough that I don't need you, but also okay enough that I can receive from you and be interdependent with you. Uh, and you don't need me, so I'm not in a. It's, so there, it's it's in a sense a, a presence based love rather than based on any sort of like power differential or hierarchy or any sort of manipulation that, which I know I, I hear that and it sounds extremely beautiful and also really scary because I, I have insecurities about relationships and I'm afraid of like being abandoned or rejected. And so I, I know for me, I, I default to, to relationships where I am kind of needed or I have some influence mm-hmm. or the, the, uni- the, the uniquely cool things about me uh, are extra appreciated or I get to be like an expert at something. Mm-hmm. I, I like those relationships. Yeah. Oh man, I so I so feel that. I don't. I'm still learning how exactly to do relationships, um, and I feel like that's going to be something that I'm learning forever until I die. But so many of the relationships that I've had, and not just romantic relationships. I mean, many many re- relationships, especially through the church has been based on that whole I have I have something to provide to you and if I don't have this thing to provide to you or if I don't have a thing to provide to you then I'm useless to you you're not going to love me and I'm going to be on my own again and it's informed by a lot of personal history and things like that and it's hard to shake that and it's it creeps into so many different things. Like I said, a lot of church stuff, but it crept into my relationships too. Uh, or excuse me, my romantic relationships. Like the last, certainly the last woman I dated um, for six months, it was that same sort of like, I I realized a little bit early on within a couple of months, like this person's not the not the person who I think I want to marry. I mean, couple that with the whole, because especially in the in the Protestant side of things, we always hear like the whole, no, you just got to stick your relationship out. You got to go. 
you can't you can't give up which is in the context of marriage but that's all we hear about uh we don't hear anything healthy about dating really and so like that's all i heard in my head so i was like well maybe i'm just like maybe i just need to wait wait it out maybe i'm not seeing something maybe we'll grow together any number of these things when in reality if you're already considering couples counseling after two months into dating somebody might be better to move on <laughs> for both of your sakes maybe that's so. the uh, like for both of your sakes and so but my last relationship i still care for her deeply though we haven't spoken for a long time she struggled a lot with things like heavy anxiety and a number of other things and i started staying in that relationship because i wanted to help her through those not because i wanted a romantic relationship with her and in the end i ended up hurting her much more severely than if i had just said hey can we just be friends because we're not right for each other? Right. Yeah. And so there are, there are categories of relationships that are based on care, like a parent relationship, you know, Mm -hmm. a parent, there's the between parent and child, there is that power differential and there's a reason for that. And that's, that's that relationship is rightly ordered when the parent is caring for the kid, Uh, you know, or in like a caregiver relationship or a teacher relationship, or even like older friend and younger friends, a little bit, but but I think like what we're talking about is like in uh, in an intimate partnership or in like a peer relationship. There's really something beautiful and special about not needing each other and really just yes. wanting each other. Yeah, I, and I guess in in a way that hints at how is it that we relate to God? Because <laughs> I mean, clearly He doesn't need us, <laughs> but no. and but so being able to being able to. If, I think C.S. Lewis has explored this in a couple of characters already where you know, it's, these, it's these people who are like, but I want to hold on to my art and I want to hold on to my intellect and I want to hold on to all, all of these things that made me valuable in an earthly scope. All, and none of which matter anymore because like, you know, in, in, the, in this in the story, like, you know, the Lord Jesus is not looking for a person's, you know, intellect or art. He's, he's looking for like, like the beauty of the inner soul and... Mm-hmm. And we could say, like you know, uh, like the the virtues, the 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 undiluted, purified, repentant, humble, humble soul. So Sarah and Frank, there they're in their debate, but then so as they shift into chapter thirteen, they're they're still talking, and I think what we see now is that Frank starts to lose in the conversation, or or he starts to he starts to decline. He's very caught up in his arguments and in his needs and insecurities, and he starts shrinking. And so, and here's where I'm going to, I'm going to go off on like the, these, uh, internal family systems concepts again, a little bit. So Frank, the dwarf shrinks until he, until he disappears. And then they start talking. And then as Jack and George McDonald are, are watching this, then they start talking about how as also shrinking and, they bring in this idea of like hell being this incredibly tiny space, actually. And they're like, oh, yeah, it's like you see that tiny crack in the sidewalk. Yeah, all of hell is in that little crack. And things expand once they get out of it, which is really interesting and really, I think really brilliant. And again, as, as I'm learning about <laughs> in, my, in, my counselor, in my counselor life, how people work. So there's this idea of like internal space or expansiveness. And in, and in, in contrast to that is this idea of like being being blended, being blended to the different parts. And so when you are blended with a part, blended with a burden, when you're in a mode of like anxiety or rigidity or anything like that, and um, oh, super brain fart. Anyway, I wrote something kind of cool about that, but I forgot. <laughs> anyway, um, maybe we'll edit that part out. But like, uh, but so so. Um, when a person is, you know, caught up in their like insecurity and their rigidity, just like an obsession of something, uh, or living in a world in a world of like fear or, or anger or anything, like like the world just like shrinks and like all you can see is like this one thing that you're preoccupied with or angry about, and and it's a very tiny, it's a very fragile, it's a very rigid world, and it can be like a really like internally externally hostile world, which you know again and kind of going with like the motif that that Lewis presents is like you create hell for yourself and you isolate mm-hmm. yourself and like within, you know, referencing, you know, several chapters back, like Napoleon, who is just like, uh, it was Josephine. It was them. It was all of their fault. And he's like preoccupied He's blended with this, like blaming others mode in his little castle, like, you know, millions of light years away from everybody else. 
But really, all of that is like a molecule in this like really, really, really tiny little hell that ultimately can't really get outside of itself. And, and I love the way that that's contrasted with the the bright people who are in heaven and they're in this hugely expansive world. What we notice in a, in a clinical sense is that that kind of space is actually possible for people too. When we can unblend from the parts, when we can be in what again IFS calls uh, the, the self mode, let you know it's a mode of being calm and being curious and being compassionate and courageous, and there's clarity there, and there's a sense that in me is infinite space, in me is infinite capacity for care, and and infinite resilience, and and I and I would say I I. I I suspect that they they're, they found clinical language to talk about the soul and the image of God. And like, yes, I mean, if we're imaged after an infinite God, then there must be like an infinite component to us. And when we can be in that, then then we become big and we become huge inside with room for our feelings, room for other people's feelings. And, and there's this... And, 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 in working with people who find that there's a sense of just like lightness and freedom, and uh, and I'm thinking I'm watching like the, the the bright people in in this big expansive world get to be in that same mode of unblended and heavenly space, lots of space. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's I think it's beautiful, and it's a uh, you know it's a sad contrast to what happens to frank like he gets absorbed by this this tragedy and this this voice in him that's making him pity himself and the self-victimizing and and we see frank completely shrink like you can't even see him holding on to the chain anymore and it's and he effectively becomes somebody who sarah never knew and that's um she kind of says that and then suddenly the the ghost goes away but yeah just this this concept of <laughs> that's my time to wake up <laughs> yep uh this concept of just becoming greater in in this particular sense um so much more full of love the greater that you are that better you can go back down into those depths to see people uh and there is there's a point where even the the brightest of the bright people can't go any further down in like down into that crack of hell. And I thought it was, I was kind of a cool idea that, uh, that Lewis brought up. And I think he, in a footnote, he says he took it from the same, same idea from the same place as he got like the, the more real concept, the more real matter. But yeah, it's got a point to it is like the, the more that these people have become in love, the more they're able to actually see the uh, the ghosts, and it's kind of alluded to, although I didn't quite understand it uh, a few chapters before. Forget, uh, oh, it was the mother looking for her son, I think, and she said, or her spirit said, uh, "You can, you could eventually go to see him, but he wouldn't be able to see you in his current state." And so, and then the uh, George McDonald talks about some sort of process that the spirits go through to be able to see uh the ghost and it seems to be this particular thing of like they're so much more in love um that they're able to actually see the ghosts and be with them and work with them and And it even goes oh go ahead i was gonna say i mean there's a lot of talk of these ghosts being in love and any what they're talking about is not having infatuated feelings that they're talking about Mm -hmm. being like physically being in the presence of love or in this love body or in, in a mode of love. And and so it's, it's this very tangible thing that they are now actually in, in. And a part of. Yes. Yes. And from there, yes, they have a whole bunch of perspective and capacity. Yeah. Other quotes from Sarah, she says, I cannot love a lie. I cannot love the thing, which is not, I'm in love and out of it. I will not go. Oh, there's another great quote. I think it was, Another from Sarah, she she says, everything becomes more and more itself, which is funny because in the in the in the paperback paperback that I'm reading, like the next couple lines after that were underlined by somebody, but like the, this one got missed, and I was like, but 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 wait 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 wait, <laughs> you missed a you missed a really good one, and, and it was reminding me about I know a couple of chapters back, he's talking about how 
people are on trajectory. And for those who are in heaven, they will have always been in heaven. And for those who are in hell, like, you know, even their triumphs on earth where we're already hell. And talk, talking about that, that just like trajectory element of, you know, you, you set yourself on a trajectory and you set yourself on a course that way. And like, and that changes you from the moment you choose it. And then all of life becomes a step toward being more of what you, more of what you are or or like you you make a you make a decision and then degree to become something and then you start becoming more of that and then in order to become something else takes a lot of work because it means like undoing that whole trajectory and consciously making a lot of other choices uh it was really interesting i love and, and you you were talking about the like the higher like the higher life forms being able to reach down to the lower ones like like the more real matter and how it interacts with like the less real matter i, I love that and it was um i'm gonna kind of the, the pinnacle line i think that uh i think it's george mcdonald that that says it towards the end only the greatest of all can make himself small enough to enter hell but the higher a thing is the lower it can descend a man cannot sympathize a man can sympathize with a horse but a horse cannot sympathize with a rat and only one has descended into hell <laughs> only one has descended into hell um so, which, you know, I mean, for us in, in Christian tradition, I mean, we'll recognize that as a reference to the incarnation and the Lord God taking on, you know, retaining divine potentialities, taking on human potentialities and all inhabiting in, in, in one, in one body, uh, mm-hmm. which is a marvelously complex thing for. Yeah. And, <laughs> and even more so from, from the incarnation, like there's, there's one one tiny little reference in one of the epistles that says, yeah, and Jesus went down into hell to preach to those, to those who were lost, or I'm paraphrasing. But I love that Lewis actually kind of calls that out because certainly in Protestant traditions, nobody talks about that. Yeah. No, we and don't talk. Huge, huge theological point. Yeah, and it's and then again, and there's again, we'll have to drop links to some Lord of Spirits episodes. But they talk about how like you know, death is not this abstract thing. Like death is death is a person. You know, death is a, a spiritual being who literally got trampled by the death of Christ. You know, Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death, the person by his own death, and then you know, leading free all of the all of the captives, which is just. Marvelous, marvelous, <laughs> hugely wonderful and, and glorious. And we can't say enough about it, but we're going to stop. <laughs> what was I saying there? It's just, it's just an amazing idea of understanding, I guess, I guess, you know, what is the difference between a person and an animal? You know, not just people have souls, but there's a sense of people have a capacity for empathy or they have the capacity to understand and interact with, with lower life forms. And and they have, we have the capacity to descend and, and, and reascend. And perhaps, perhaps you could say, I don't know, I'm just not thinking of this. I wonder if that is even like inherent to like our potentiality is to, to lower ourselves for the sake of like, you know, benefiting or that might go off into the weeds. I'm going to maybe stop that one, but <laughs> yeah, I found that really interesting. Uh, so yeah, which again, well, again, in how we see this played out here, it's it's where someone like you know Sarah Smith, she goes she goes through her own like, theosis process and 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 achieves the the bright place, and you know, so she's able to visit the dwarf, but he's not able to to follow her again because he's not able to get to that. He's not able to let go of his parts. He's not able to let go of his insecurities or his need to be needed. He's not able to truly love or be in love, and so. He can't exceed himself. Uh, and they talk about that. They talk about how, because, because of the nature of hell, like hell being super tiny and diminutive, hell ultimately can't affect joy and can't infect joy or love because it's just too small. But love and joy can go the other way and they can enter into hell to begin to change it and redeem it and invite people out of it. So that's, that's the circuit there. Okay, chapter 14. <laughs> <laughs> Where he ends. Where, yes, where he wakes up. <laughs> yeah, basically. Uh, like, right right before this, he has a conversation with George MacDonald on, you know, what time basically looks like. And, and you know, MacDonald brings up concepts of, like, predestination and universalism and saying that both of these are too small um, and only 
only kind of through a lens. And it's he, he likens it to looking through a telescope, telescope backwards, where because, because these we're talking about eternity, these things can only describe basically portions of what's to come. And then we see this huge shift in chapter 14, uh, and suddenly everything was changed. I saw a great assembly of gigantic forms, all motionless, standing in the deepest silence, standing forever around a little silver table and looking on it. And we we come to find out that these uh, that there are like these chessmen on the board that are these like I won't say incarnations, but like the the representations, I suppose, of these great and vast spirits outside of time, because our author has been experiencing this whole thing in in time like it's a very mind bendy opening of the inner eye sort of vision yeah yeah that, that, that was a chippy image and I, I think i got the impression like the the people around the chessboard were like watching the chess pieces which were incarnations of themselves and they were like what you know one of them was in time or out of time yes that's very star trekky <laughs> yes but but it's interesting I, I love the line at the end where as, as Jack is waking up and he says, you know, the morning, the morning, I'm caught by the morning and I am a ghost. At the crucial moment, he's caught and prepared, but then he wakes and gets a restart. He has the option now to prepare for that which he understands now a little more, which is his end. He has seen the fates of over a dozen souls who are not prepared to have their works examined and are prepared to be exposed to light and truth and beauty and love. And that was something I wrote down. I'm not actually that eloquent. Mm-hmm. So I have really mixed feelings about this. On the one hand, on a, on a literary note, I, I felt kind of let down by the like, oh, it was a dream. That was it. Like that, that was the ending. I mean, and I mean, it kind of had this like Christmas carol-y sort of flair yeah. to it of you know, now I can go back to my life. So it felt a little easy, but he's C.S. Lewis. So we'll, we'll let it stand. <laughs> but practically, pragmatically though, and thinking, okay, so, you know, how does it, how can this story shape us or what can we take away from this? There's, you know, I, I feel like the character kind of goes away with a sense of like, oh, I was really unprepared for all of this. And, and then, and when he thinks he sees like the, like, like the heavenly morning coming, he's, he's saying like, but I'm still a ghost. I'm not prepared for this. And then theoretically we could imply he, when he wakes up in his, in his real life, he knows now it's coming and he knows what he needs to do. And that feels really valuable as well. So to always live in the sense of preparation or the sense of I need to be preparing. And like, again, like Orthodox spiritual practice really centers on this idea of a preparation for death. We're just always talking about it. And, and death for us is entering into the presence of God. And it's a presence that burns away what's insubstantial or harmful and preserves that which is already indestructible. And the pra- the practice is is repentance. There there there's a story in the sayings of the Desert Fathers of one one of the Desert Fathers who was like super super holy, and I'm gonna I'm forgetting his name, like holy to the point of like you could kind of see him like glowing sometimes, uh, I think. And like on his deathbed, you know, they're like, "Are you ready? Are you eager to be in the presence of the Lord?" And he said, "I have not even begun to repent," which hyperbole. Of course, he had been repenting all the time, but like, but he had this really profound sense of there's so much to repent of and so much preparation. Mm-hmm. And like, that's just where his mind was like this reality, this transition from, from this life into the next is so real and so important and can't be underestimated. And if we really could get a sense of like, just how real it was, then yes, like everything we would do would be in preparation for that. And there would be a lot of repentance because there'd be like a lot of self-awareness of like, Oh, stuff that's out of order and passions and internal chaos, which makes me think again about, my own life and how I conduct myself. There's a, there's a prayer. There's one of the Orthodox prayers has this line, like, like may we not be found like fallen and idle, but watchful and upright in activity. And, and I have to think about that. Like when I'm like doom scrolling, <laughs> be like I am fallen and idle right now and I need to repent and close my browser. Yeah. Mine's the, the internal argument because usually when I hit those like 99% of the time, the the mo behind it is me feeling better than somebody else um smarter wiser whatever that is going to be but yeah and it's it's been a lot of that lately especially in a world where we live in constant bickering effectively and and a lot of injustice too and i'm not gonna say that there isn't but you know if i'm 
if I'm going to quote unquote fight the injustice, I have to know where my heart's at because it's way too easy, way too easy to get stuck in that idea of like, I'm right, you're wrong. And that means that I'm better than you. That seems like that'd be a really tiny, tiny world to live in. Very much so. Yeah. So the moral of the story is practice inner expansion and repentance. Yes. <laughs> and and stay off the grass because the grass is <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah. Get off my lawn! <laughs> I think that is our book. Unless the, yeah, if we did it, we completed something. I feel I feel accomplished. Yeah, I really love this and I really love the characters and the process. Thank you, Jake, for hanging with me. Yeah, so, thank you for having me. Absolutely. So, hope to see you back next time with, we're not forgetting, we the book we referenced earlier is the book 1984 by George Orwell. We are jumping genres and stories and we'll read another famously contentious novel after this. And it will be super loads of dystopian fun, I think. And <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have fun with it. Yes. Uh, we hope you join us very much. Again, hopefully by the time this comes out, there my, my aspiration is to have like a Facebook discussion group. We'll see if that's actually in existence. Well, if it is, you'll have known about it for many episodes by now. But please do also check out our Patreon and our blogs. And I uh, I now have an Instagram account. So... Hey, <laughs> we'll hopefully be talking about this there and also watch for season two of scotch and socialism with our one and only best friend jake schwartz Woo-hoo. yep hopefully we should be i don't know when these are coming out but yes we're as of this recording we are going to start trying to re- uh, record again on tuesday so one week cool. from two days ago okay sounds good i think it i think it'll end up being a race we'll uh episode <laughs> well your season two air before my season one uh-huh. i think if you think they'll be airing similarly timed so we'll see it's a race cool. i hope i win <laughs> it's a race <laughs> all right we gotta go thank you again jake for being here and thank you dear listener for following thank us you, and we'll talk to y'all soon bye bye is a podcast by Moses Bernabe. If you like what you hear, consider supporting the show with dollars, reviews, or shares, or all of the above. Word and Journey can be found on most major podcast platforms and on my author Patreon at patreon.com slash Moses Bernabe. Moses Bernabe can be found at mosesbernabe.com. Contact info for my most excellent co-hosts can be found in the liner notes. The podcast logo was designed by TJ Todd with additional development by Moses Bernabe. The theme music is by Aaron Esparza. This episode was mastered by Breakfast Puppies. Thanks for listening and see you next time.